You can open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. And this evening in our study of warfare, we want to look at a piece of armor that is absolutely vital, just vital, in our efforts to defeat Satan. And this piece is so important that the great English Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said that this is what covers up all the rest of the armor. He said we have defensive weapons, but he said this weapon, this is the defense for our defense. Tonight we're going to talk about the shield of faith. A few uh, years ago, I'm sure most of you probably don't remember this, but maybe somebody does, but I preached a sermon entitled Grace and Faith, the Ingredients of Salvation. And in that message, I talked about how that God's grace is, is what reaches out to me that I'm a vile, wicked, hell-deserving, unworthy sinner. God's grace reaches out to me, and then God works out all things that are necessary to bring me to himself so that I'll put my trust in him. Grace, of course, as we have all heard the definition, is God's unmerited favor, and faith is my response to what God has done for me. Faith never originates in man. Faith is always God-given in the sense that faith is enabled by God. No one just has faith on their own. God enables a person to have faith because God illuminates the heart of a dead sinner, awakens him to the gospel of Christ, enables him to put his faith in in Christ. That's what we call saving faith. And, of course, saving faith is essential because there's no way that we can ever be righteous with God. There's no way that we can come to God unless we have saving faith. But saving faith is not the subject when Paul is talking about this shield of faith. And that's because it's assumed that before a person ever is able to get into Christian warfare and before he can ever put on weapons, he already has saving faith. We're talking about Christians here, so we're not talking about somebody who needs to have saving faith. Then when we discussed the girdle of truth back up here in verse number 14, we talked about faith there as well. We talked about truth. And I said then that truth is the whole complement of Christian doctrine. I mean, this is what we call uh, everything that we believe about the Christian faith. It's called the body of faith. That's what truth is. And, and uh, it's not saving faith, but it's faith in the sense of everything that we believe to be true as Christians. And so that would include the, the different doctrines of God's Word that we teach, what we believe about the church and what we believe about baptism, uh, what we believe about the doctrines of grace and those things that we teach, justification, redemption, glorification, uh, truth there, and the body of faith simply encompasses everything that defines Christianity. But when we're talking about the shield of faith, Paul is not talking about faith in that sense either. What I believe that Paul is dealing with here is faith that is the everyday ability to trust God in all circumstances, And as God provides for us, we put faith and trust in him. Faith here is defined as we find it in the book of Hebrews, where it says the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. This is the kind of faith that when you face something that's impossible, you know that you can get through that because all things are possible with God. So that's the kind of faith that we're going to talk about tonight. So let's stand as we read God's word. We're looking in Ephesians chapter 6. We'll start with verse number 13. Our text verse is verse number 16. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, 
and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great text that we have in Ephesians chapter 6. Help us to understand what Paul means when he speaks about faith tonight. And then, Lord, may we be sure to put our faith, all of our trust in you, that you can indeed take care of all things and do the impossible for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like you to notice here verse number 16 again. He says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith he shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. We notice there that Paul begins that verse by saying, Above all. And when we read that, we may be tempted to think that what Paul is saying here is that faith is the absolute a most important thing, that he's singling out faith as the most important of all the pieces of armor. Well, faith certainly is important, and, and we're going to talk about that, and we under, understand faith is an important thing. But when he says here, above all, actually the interpretation of that would be better to say, in addition to, in addition to all these things he's already talked about. He's spoken of the girdle of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And he says, in addition to that, what you need to do is to have faith. Above all, also introduces what we find in verse number 17, where he talks about the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So these are things that are in addition to what he's already talked about. And unless we have this entire armor of God, all of it in place, then it won't be very effective. Now, in Paul's day, the Roman soldier carried two types of shields. One of these shields was a smaller shield that he would put on his arm, and he could swing that shield, or he would use it to, to defend himself against the blow of a sword. He could swing it like this in order to hit someone. So he had that kind of shield. But there was also another type of shield that the soldier had, and this was really a, a shield that was large enough to uncover the entire body. He could put his whole body behind that shield. And so when a general in, in, of the Roman army would bring his men into the field, he would put up these, these soldiers with these large shields, and they would be the first line of defense. There would be a, a line there of soldiers, perhaps a mile or longer, a mile uh, or, or longer if need be, and all of these soldiers would get down behind those shields, and they would wait for this barrage of flaming arrows that would be shot at them. Well, Charles Spurgeon, when he talks about this shield of faith, he speaks of it as the analogy of a door. And he says here that faith has the connotation in this sense, or the shield of faith is that of hiding behind the door. And so he says that's why the shield of faith is the defense for our defense. Now, the soldier that's wearing this piece of armor has the shield to hide behind as his first line of defense, and this is what keeps all of the rest of the armor from being penetrated. Now, I think from that we could see just how vital that faith really is. Our unwavering faith in God, that is our first line of defense against the attacks of Satan. Now, this evening, that's what we're going to talk about, this, this vital faith the shield of faith that Paul speaks of. So let's begin tonight by discussing first the focus of faith. Whenever we discuss faith, most people do very well understand the concept because everybody has faith in something. We may not even be talking about religious things, but everybody has to have faith in something. You couldn't function in a world where there wasn't any faith. When you do something as simple as setting an alarm clock in the morning to get you up, 
you have faith in that mechanical instrument that at the proper time, the alarm clock will ring and you'll be able to get up and go to work. When Gary and I were in Israel, uh, we had to get up very early in the morning and uh, we had to make sure that we could get breakfast done, catch the bus to take off to the places that we were going to go. And I remember on that very first night that we were in Israel, I had a brand new alarm clock, a travel alarm clock that I picked up at Walmart. And uh, uh, Gary said, do you trust that alarm clock to go off? Now, maybe he knew it was a Walmart alarm clock. I don't know. But he said, do you trust that alarm clock to go off? Well, I had to have trust in that alarm clock because if I didn't, I'd stay up and watch the clock every hour to make sure that we got up on time in the morning. You have to have faith in that alarm clock. Well, in fact, that's what I did do the first night. Uh, The first night, I watched the clock almost every hour to make sure that that alarm clock was going to go off. But the truth of the matter is, you couldn't live very long like that. I mean, you'd have to eventually have faith in that, put your faith there, that it's going to go off in the morning, and you'll be able to get up, because you can't stay up every night watching the clock. Well, that shows us that faith is necessary in just simple, everyday affairs of life. And if faith is necessary for simple things like that, how much more necessary, multiplied times over, is faith necessary for the big things that we have in life? Now, what is the very biggest thing that you have in life? It's actually life itself. The biggest thing that you have is life itself. So you want to be absolutely sure that you trust something, that you trust your eternal soul to something that's going to get you through. You can't have faith in something. And see, when you're talking about eternal life, your very soul, you can't have faith in something that's going to fail even one time. It has to be sure and steadfast and never fail. Now, as I said, all people have faith in something, but then that's where the confusion begins. When you talk about the eternal soul, many people don't know what to put their faith in. So what do you put your faith in? Well, the focus of faith has to be right. Now, let's notice first about this, that it's not faith in faith. Lots of times, you know, when people are having a problem, they'll seek for some advice or try to get some help. And uh, somebody will say to them, well, you just got to have faith. Got to have faith, bro. Have faith. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? But what, what real good is it? I mean, if somebody doesn't tell you what to have faith in, what good is it to have faith? I mean, whatever you have faith in has to be a good object. What you have faith in has to, be, has to be sure to take care of the problem that you have. So faith is only as good as what you have your faith in. Now, that's why we say that it's not faith that saves, not faith itself that saves. Faith by itself means nothing at all. You can, you can have faith that your doctor can cure you of a disease, but you don't have faith in that doctor simply as a man. I mean, you can have faith in me as a man, and I promise you, I can't cure your diseases. I can't help you. You're not going to get any benefit from me in that area. But you have faith in a doctor because you, you know about the knowledge that he has. You know he's been to school. He, he's learned these things. And because of his training, you can put your faith in him that you believe that his knowledge is sufficient to help you with that problem. Now, likewise, when it comes with trust for your soul, it's the object of your faith that saves and not faith itself. And our faith is in an unfailing source. The faith that we have is in Jesus Christ. So it's his power, it's his ability that we trust. But I'm afraid there are too many people that simply count on faith itself, just the fact that they have faith. And so you have people that that give mental assent to the fact that the Bible is true, 
and they say they do believe the Bible. Uh, you'll hear people say, well, I believe there's a higher power. And that's a wonderful thing to believe that there's a higher power. But the problem is that m- many, many people do not know that, who that person is. They don't have a real relationship with that person. And that's what it takes. You, the object of your faith has to be right, and you have to enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ. So the focus has to be right. Focus has to be on him and his ability alone. So it's not just the fact that you have faith in something, not just the fact that religiously you can say that you have faith. That is not enough. Faith for the sake of faith is not enough. Now, secondly, this faith is tried and true. The faith that we put in Jesus Christ has a track record behind it. Our object of faith has a track record. Now, Nobody in their right mind continues to have faith in something that doesn't work. That alarm clock that we're talking about, if that alarm clock doesn't go off even one time, you can't have faith in the alarm clock any longer. I don't care if it goes off nine times out of ten. Nine times out of ten is not enough for an alarm clock, and if it's not enough for an alarm clock, it's certainly not enough for your soul. I mean, it has to be right every time. Now, this is really... One of the amazing things, I think, about the failure of Israel to trust God. I don't know how long it's going to take to get Israel and the things that I experienced there out of my system. You'll probably be hearing about it for months and months to come. But I remember on the second day that I was, we were in Israel, uh, we went up to Mount Carmel. And, of course, that's the place where Elijah had that great contest with the prophets of Baal. And we drove up that mountain, and, and it was truly an impressive sight. Once you get on top of that mountain, stretched out before you for miles and miles and miles, as far as you can see, is the Valley of Jezreel. And then off in the distance, you can see Mount Tabor, and that's the place where they consider to be the traditional site of Jesus' ascension. And you look at that, and you're standing on top of that mountain, and you just have to think, this is the absolute perfect place for a display of God's power. I mean, Elijah picked the right spot. You see all that below you. And as you're standing there, you can almost hear Elijah speaking to those prophets of Baal and taunting them. Where's your God? What's your God doing? Maybe he's off on a far journey. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's otherwise occupied. And and Elijah there is just taunting those those, uh, prophets of Baal. And then when Elijah called on Jehovah God, I could just stand there and imagine that fire coming down from heaven. Now, our tour guide said that that was lightning. I don't think he's right about that. I don't think it was something as natural as lightning. I think God shot down fire from heaven in some way to do that, and he consumed that sacrifice. Something supernatural about that. Now, I could imagine seeing that in my mind's eye. But what I couldn't imagine is that Israel, after seeing that happen and seeing what God could do, that they would ever even think about turning away from God. Why would they walk contrary to God? Never had God failed them in any circumstance. And God had always been sufficient for them that they could trust him no matter what. Now, here's the thing about what God does for us. There's evidence in God's power. We see what God can do. We can trust that. The Bible has never told us that we have to put blind faith in anything. We can trust God because we can read right here what God has done. We we don't accept things blindly. So Elijah, he didn't have faith without knowing what God could do. I mean, he knew the power of God, so he could build that altar, and he knew that he could take those 12 barrels of water and pour it on top of that sacrifice, that he could stand there and taunt the prophets of Baal, 
And then when he got ready to call on his God, he knew without fail that God was going to answer him. That's the kind of faith that we're talking about. It's the kind of faith that acts as a shield for us. This is faith and an unshakable confidence in God. Faith is the assurance that God always stays true to his promises. So there's no reason to fear any fiery darts of the wicked when they come because God is able to, to take care of all of those and keep those away from us. So you can get behind that shield of faith. You get behind the door, just like Spurgeon says, and you hide behind that, and those fiery darts do not penetrate. You know, I love that song. Uh, we haven't sung it much here lately, but uh, or the song that says, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. He hideth my soul in the cleft of a rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my soul in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand. When you are covered in the hand of God, there's no reason to fear because God is tried and true. And so when the focus of your faith is right, then the object of your faith is right, and that means that you can withstand all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, let's go on here because next I want to talk to you about the force of faith. How much faith does it really take to see great things from God? Well, take your Bible there and turn to Matthew chapter 17. Most of you are familiar with this scripture. This is the story about the man who had a, a son who was possessed by a devil. And his father said, well, he's a lunatic. He said, oftentimes he falls into the fire, he falls into the water. And so he came to Jesus and he asked him if he would heal his son. Now look at Matthew 17. We're going to start here at verse number 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and off into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? Now let's look here at Jesus' answer, because this says something about the amount of faith that's needed to do miracles. The disciples asked, why couldn't we cast out this devil? And Jesus says in verse 20, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now here's what I want you to see from this. A little faith is a powerful force. A little faith is a powerful force. Now, some people are just totally confused about what Jesus is saying here. They try to quantify this faith, and they say, well, well, you really don't have to believe very much. You just have to have a little bit of faith. But that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. What Jesus is speaking of is a living faith. You see, in a mustard seed, there's life. A mustard seed may be the, the smallest of all seeds, and yet packed within that little bitty mustard seed is the force of life. And that mustard seed, when planted, it grows into a large, vibrant plant. So it's the life that's contained in that mustard seed that causes things to happen. So it's a living faith. This is what Jesus is telling us. A living faith is what produces something. Now, these disciples, they may have thought that it was sufficient just to keep company with Jesus, just walk around with Jesus, just be in the presence of Jesus, and then we can do whatever Jesus does. But what they really needed was faith to be a part of them. 
They needed faith to be in their lives to the extent that they didn't really have to think about this. They didn't have to really uh, wonder, uh, wonder, what are we going to do here? That faith was such a part of them that they could just speak the word and the power of God would be behind that. Now, that's a question for us. Do we really have that kind of faith? Do we live by faith? Is faith such a part of us that when a problem comes up that we don't, have to, we don't worry about it, we don't concern ourselves with that, we, we, we don't have to think hard, we don't have to muster up faith because faith is a part of it part of us. We live close to the Lord. And so whenever a trial comes, we don't have to think twice about this. We call on the power of God and our faith takes care of that. There's nothing that we face that God can't handle. Now, not many Christians do that because at the first sign of trouble, when they get that report from the doctor and the doctor says, well, something's wrong here, there's a problem, they begin to wring their hands. They get upset about it. They're frantically wondering, what am I going to do next about this? And so what they think they need is they need more faith. They don't really need more faith. They just need to exercise the faith that's already a part of them. You know why I say that? Because for every single Christian, and everybody in this room, certainly if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ lives inside of you. So the power is right there. It's always available. You don't have to worry about having a a great faith or a whole lot more of faith. It's already right there because it's a living Christ that's in you. So the point here is that the little mustard seed is greater than a mountain. And why is that? Because a mountain has no life in it. There's nothing there. And so that mustard seed having the life in it, that's greater than that big mountain. And so Jesus is teaching when you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, it's more powerful than any object that looms over you. What's sickness when you have faith in God? What's financial difficulty when you have faith in God? It means nothing. God's more powerful than all of that. And so in Christ, there's ability to overcome it. Now, if you go back to the teaching of Jesus concerning worry and anxiety, you remember Jesus said, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to your stature? Then he went on and he talked about how how the the grass grows, and how God clothes the lilies of the field. And he says, don't you think that God will take care of you? Of how much more value are you than plant life? Even a little faith, as we look at it, is a powerful force. So what happens when you have great faith? Well, there's no telling what you could do when Jesus says, here's what the little grain of mustard seed and faith like that can do. I don't know what we could do around here if we had the faith that Jesus was talking about. Now, let's observe something here. The second observation about the force of faith is that you increase the size by exercise. How do you increase your faith? You use it more. Faith is just like muscles in your body. Now, you remember what we're talking about here. This is Christ in you. Faith is not something that you get from the outside. You don't go to the store and buy a little bit more faith. Faith is already in you. It's already there. And what you need to do is just use that faith. Now, when you, when you want to grow stronger, I never heard of this. I, I don't know if anybody's ever done this. If they go to the hospital, maybe, maybe, it, maybe it happened, I don't know. But you go to the hospital and you tell the doctor, you say, you know something, doctor, I need to be stronger, so I'm here for my muscle transplant. The doctor's not going to give you a muscle transplant. What he'll do, though, is he'll start to teach you how to use the muscles that you have, and he'll tell you how you need to exercise those and how you need to tone your muscles up because when you don't use them, muscles begin to atrophy. Several years ago, I had an operation on my knee. And they cut my knee open. They fixed it all up, sewed it back up. 
And I'm telling you, folks, it was sore after they did all of that. And this is back before they did the kinds of surgeries like they do today where they don't even have to cut you open. Man, they cut my knee all the way down and got in there and worked around on it, and that thing was sore. Well, what I was tempted to do was just lay in the bed and not move that knee because it hurt. But you know what the doctor said? Don't you do that because if you do, you're going to lose the use of your knee. What will happen to you, you're going to lose the range of motion in that knee. So you've got to get up on it and you've got to exercise it, keep working it, so it'll have the power in that knee that you need to have. Now, this is the same thing that we're talking about with faith. Faith is like that. You have to exercise faith to make it stronger. You see, when you trust God implicitly to take care of a problem that you have today, and you have the faith in God to do that, then you have no question that God's going to take care of another problem that comes tomorrow. You just keep exercising faith, and God takes care of it. And when I was working on this message a a few weeks ago, there was an email that came in from Janet Jefferson. Larry's here tonight, but she, she commented on what happened about five years ago at this time, that Larry was laying in a hospital bed, and the doctor said that he was never going to walk again. Now, at that moment, you don't know what to do. I mean, all you can do is just pray. You just trust God. You ask God to do something with this. Five years later, there's Larry. He's sitting here. He can walk. But I know this. If there's another big setback that comes, I know what they'll do. They had faith in God. They saw what God can do and said, oh, I'll trust him for the next thing that comes along. That's how you exercise faith, and that's how faith works. When you trust God to see you through one thing, then the next problem that comes along, you know God can handle that too. When we think about faith, we have plenty of examples in the Bible. We can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and there we have what's called the roll call of the faithful. Lots of faithful people in Hebrews 11. But the one that, that really stands out the most, I think, is Abraham. Abraham, of course, is called the father of the faithful. And Abraham had faith in God because God came to him He was 99 years old, and God said to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Sarah was 90 years old, and true to what God said, they did have that son. You know, I never really thought much about Sarah and and what what it was like to have a child at 90 years old. Now, I've always believed that's a miracle, of course. I mean, women that are 90 years old don't have children. But I never really thought how serious of a miracle that was. Now, the reason that 90-year-old women don't have children is because the womb is completely dried up. The muscles that are there that are used for delivery of a baby when they're younger, all of those muscles have atrophied, and those muscles don't function any longer. The hormones aren't there anymore. They don't have what they need to stimulate what's necessary for childbearing. Well, I never thought much about that, and again, until we were in Israel, and there was an example that was brought up about this during that trip. You see, before Sarah could have a child... What God had to do, he had to completely remake her womb. What God had to do, he had to fix the plumbing, so to speak. I mean, all of it was worn out, and God had to come in there and just redo it all. That was a miracle. Now, when Abraham saw that, what God could do, do you think that Abraham had some faith, and and the next time that something came up that he wasn't thinking about what God did with Sarah? Well, certainly he did. And that helped increase Abraham's faith. Abraham saw what God could do. And so when it came time that God said to him, I want you to go up and I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Now that's what Abraham did. He took him up on Mount Moriah and he had confidence that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham 
was not expecting that God was going to stop him before he plunged that dagger. He fully expected that what he would do is he would slit that young man's throat, he would drain all the blood out of him, he'd lay him on that altar of sacrifice, and he would burn that body. That's why he took the wood of the sacrifice with him. So he got up there. He fully expected, I'll have to kill my son. But at the same time, he fully expected that God would raise him from the dead. So Abraham, he expected that he was going to make the sacrifice. He goes up the mountain. He tells his servants that are there, you stay here, and we're going up on the mountain. But we're coming back. We'll be back here. We'll see you again. You see, he fully believed that God was going to raise that young man from the dead. Why do you think he believed that? Well, because way back there, before Isaac was born, he saw God give life right then. Impossible, but God gave life then. And so he had full confidence that if he sacrificed Isaac, God could give life again. That's what faith does for you. You see the evidence of what God does, and you believe it. God never leaves us without the evidence. So you see what happens when you exercise faith? You increase the size by exercise. You know that nothing is too hard for God because you trusted him before in an impossible situation and you know that God can handle the next one. Now, that's the force of faith. That's why Paul says, take this shield of faith. Quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Nothing penetrates this shield when you have full confidence in God. So that's great. I mean, here you have the focus of faith and the focus is the unfailing object of our faith and that's Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the force of faith. Faith does great things. Faith does the impossible because our God, of course, is the God of the impossible. But that's not the only thing that we look at because there's a warning also that goes along with faith. When faith is improper, then there's the failure of faith. And I certainly don't mean that faith will ever fail when it's properly exercised. When you have your faith in the right object, it cannot fail because the object himself never fails. But faith will fail when the focus gets off. Now, let me give you just a couple of observations about failing faith. First of all, we fail when we justify sin. In the last part of verse 16, Paul talks about those fiery darts of the wicked. Let's, let's, let's talk about that for just a minute. What, what does he mean there? Well, these fiery darts is something that Paul is alluding to about warfare in his day. What they would do is they would, they would take a, an arrow and they would wrap it in cloth, dip it in pitch, and set that arrow on fire. And then they would shoot the arrow, and then when it landed, that pitch would splatter out, it would spray out, and so around, a pretty good radius around that flaming arrow, there would be a fire that was burning. Now, Paul compares that to the temptations that Satan hurls at us. And the shield of faith, when it's up in its place, it deflects those fiery darts. But every time that an arrow gets through, and that's when the shield of faith is not up where it's supposed to be, that's Satan's attempt to get us to distrust God. And we've discussed this before as we were dealing with another area, but sin comes down to this. Sin, the root of all sin, is actually our propensity not to trust God. And so when there's a temptation that comes into our life and we act on that temptation, we sin. And at that point, we no longer find ourselves defending ourselves against Satan. That's already done. We've missed that opportunity. Now we find ourselves defending ourselves against God. So how do we do that? Well, we start offering excuses. We try to justify our sin. 
It's exactly what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned against God, instead of repenting of the sin, he started to defend himself against God. He said, God, it was the woman that you gave me. God, it's your fault because you're the one who gave her to me. And so he came an excuse for his sin. He begins to justify it. And so what Adam did then, he impugned God's character by trying to justify sin. Now, all sin, when we try to justify sin, what that does, it exalts Satan above God. It says that Satan is right and God is wrong. It implies that God is not right to demand that we live in righteousness and holiness. It's not right for God to demand such a high standard. Now, when a Christian falls into sin, he does it because he's not acting in faith. I mean, here's the whole problem. That's why the Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, we need to be aware of this. There, there is no excuse for any sin. God's standards are high. But because the standards are high does not mean that God doesn't have the right to uphold those standards and say we absolutely must live by them, even though God knows that it's impossible for any person here to live up to his standards. So how do you do it? How will you ever live up to God's standard? You can only do it through faith. And to the degree that you don't have faith, you fall short of God's standard. So faith is the only thing that bridges our failures. So we have to continually act in faith and exercise faith where the fiery darts of Satan will get through to us. Well, finally, we also fail when we deify self. When you become self-sufficient, that's when you say, I don't need you, God. I can do this on my own. And so when you do that, you're saying, my abilities are sufficient. And so what you claim for yourself is that you can do alone what God says that he does or can do. And so what is that? That's deifying yourself. It's saying, I have the same abilities or even great ability, a greater ability than God. Unfortunately, that's where many Christians live. They are self-dependent. Now, we've, all, we've, we've talked about this as it concerns individuals, but let me just talk for a minute about this kind of faith when it comes to churches. Churches can be guilty of the same thing. They can be guilty of de- deifying self, and they do that when they, when they try to get into all these programs and gimmicks to do God's work. When the church says that the preaching of the gospel is not sufficient to save people or to bring people to Christ in this day and age, and so we have to add something to that, we've got to have some other kind of program for it, we've got to work in the energy of what we do, then we're saying that we can do what the gospel fails to do, and that's deifying ourselves. Now, the best example that we can find of this is we look in, right here in 1 Corinthians that we've been studying on Sunday mornings. What happened to those Corinthian people? They began to trust themselves. They thought, we have wisdom. We know better than Paul. We know how to do this, and Paul doesn't know how to do it, so we trust ourselves in our own worldly wisdom. But where did it ever get them? Where did it ever get anybody in the ancient world? There you are in Corinth. You have the best philosophers of all time. You have the greatest philosophies that have ever been proposed. And what did it do for them? All that it did was put them into abject immorality and polytheism. It never brought them to the one true God. How in the world do you think, I mean, with these great orators, the ability to speak, all that they could do, they made nothing but a mess of things, confusion and chaos everywhere. How in the world does a church today think that I can start to substitute 
worldly methods, Madison Avenue techniques in order to win people to Christ. How's that possible? It won't work. We'll end up in exactly the same spot that those Corinthians did. And so churches do that today. And the further that they get away from God, the further they fall in their faith. So what do we have to do? We've got to continue to fight. But as we fight, we have to realize that there is absolutely no power that comes from within us. All the power and all the sufficiency is of God. We are powerless unless we have all of these pieces of armor in place. So we have to do what Spurgeon said. Put up the shield of faith as a defense for our defense. And why is that? Because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So faith is full dependence and confidence in God. W.A. Criswell outlined Hebrews 11 this way. Faith is certain of God's promises. Faith is confident of God's power. Faith perceives the divine design. Faith acts on God's promises. Faith esteems Christ above all. Faith overcomes tremendous odds. And so when you put faith that way, when you understand it that way, you have the shield of faith that Paul talks about that quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked. That's why Paul says, put on this shield of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we do pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be people of faith. All of our trust, all of our confidence needs to be stayed in you because you are the one who holds all power. We know, Lord, when we trust you, you're always there. You never fail. Help us, Lord, to see the evidence that you've already displayed time and time again and give us that unshakable confidence that we have in you. Lord, bless in this time of invitation. Bless our people this week as we go out from this place that we might consider having the shield of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.